The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. For Paxlovid, there is moderate certainty evidence that it probably reduces hospitalizations. It has really good evidence that there's no difference in adverse effects. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to Annals on Call. In this episode, we discuss a recent article from the Annals titled Outpatient Treatment of Confirmed COVID-19, Living Rapid Practice Points from the American College of Physicians, Version 1. Joining us on the podcast is one of the authors of the paper, Dr. Rebecca Andrews, who's Professor of Medicine and Associate Program Director of Internal Medicine at the University of Connecticut. She's also the past chair of the ACP Board of Governors and a current member of the ACP Board of Regents, and a member of the Scientific Policy Committee that authored this paper. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I love what uh, the Scientific Policy Committee is doing with its rapid practice points, but I'm not sure that all of the uh, listeners understand what those are. So maybe you could explain the concept of rapid practice points. Sure. You know, this was one of the great things that came out of the pandemic. We were in this unique situation where we, everyone was sharing information and research, but there was a need for evaluating that research for quality. And how do you get that out as guidance to patients, public health organizations, and then of course, physicians and other healthcare providers. And so, you know, this, the way that this works is, Our goal is to target key questions that are out there, clinical questions, and then look at the evidence, evaluate the evidence using the grade method that has been set forth that is well-known and used so that we could be sure that we were using a stringent evaluation of the data that's out there, and then answer these targeted questions by synthesizing that evidence and helping the clinicians make decisions. So physicians who are, who are at the front line with patients really know what to do, but they're living because everything is developing every day. So for example, for this one, we went through published articles in April, but then we checked April through August for any changes in the literature and, and what was out there. And you know the plan is to publish these with multiple versions And it will be a really neat, like, living record of how our scientific decisions were made during this time. So uh, if I remember right, I think there have been other uh, rapid practice 
uh, points. I think there was one on remdesivir that was updated two or three times already. So Correct. we expect this outpatient one. And what was the thought process in specifically doing one that talks about outpatient COVID treatment? So as a primary care internal medicine doc, I'm thrilled that we tackled this. If you think back to the start of COVID, although many outpatient physicians did help their health organizations by going inpatient, it was just survival in the beginning. And now as COVID has progressed and the virus has mutated and we have learned about it, now the majority of care is really in the outpatient arena. There are still people who are unfortunately admitted into the hospital and we needed something to give them. How could we treat them, prevent transmission and prevent progression to severe disease? So we looked at, you know, we wanted to answer some of those questions. What will benefit our patients, keeping them out of the hospital um, and preventing that progression? So that is how it developed. And I think it's the outpatient docs who need the most guidance right now so that we can offload the hospitals and do our due diligence, keeping the patients as healthy as we can. And having people like you on that committee who do outpatient medicine gives us a very good way to make sure that the right questions are being answered because you have the clinical experience to inform, yeah, we really need to answer these questions. Even better than me, we have a non-physician member on the committee, which I think is really important to make sure that we're answering community questions as well. Great. This is an amazing uh, document. We're going to go through 14 practice points. And what I'd like you to do is to give us just a little more uh, granularity about each of these. So I'm going to read out each practice point and then turn each one over to you. Consider molnupravir to treat patients with confirmed mild to moderate COVID-19 in the outpatient setting who are within five to seven days of the onset of symptoms at high risk for progressing to severe disease. Now, I don't know the the generic names. Do you know what the trade name is for molnupravir? Yeah, so lucky for you, my significant other is a pharmacist. So <laughs> I, I will not lie that I um, sat down with him to make sure that I'm, I may still murder the names. But <laughs> so Molnupiravir is the generic and Legevrio is the trade name for it, which I don't think we hear very often. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's probably much better known as Molnupiravir. One of the things that is recurrent in all of these is high risk for progressing to severe disease. Could you mention what things the committee considered high risk for uh, progression to severe disease? So because it is something that has changed over time, at the very end of the article, there is a link to the CDC website where you can get current data. I'll talk about age last and don't kill me because I actually went online to look at the numbers a couple of days ago and everyone's going to feel old in a minute. But outside of age, we know that people who are immunocompromised, their immune system doesn't work as well as it should, are going to be um, at higher risk for progression. We knew early on that an elevated BMI, first it was obesity, and then it was just overweight, um, was one of the health conditions. But there are other underlying health conditions that put people at risk. There's a very long list on the CDC website, everything from COPD, diabetes, HIV, heart disease. And I tell my patients, if you are have a chronic disease and you're taking chronic medications, your disease is probably on that list. 
And someone who has multiple illnesses, obviously, they are a little bit confounding, although that data is still being studied. And then we have race and ethnicity. So looking at American Indians and Alaskan Natives, when they are positive for COVID, they have a two and a half times more likely chance of being hospitalized and slightly over twice as high a risk of dying. Asians have a slightly protective risk at 0.7 and 0.8 risk factors for hospitalization and death. And then uh, Black or African-American it's about two times the risk for hospitalization and death. Hispanics or Latinos are about the same. It's age, and I didn't realize until I relooked at the numbers, um, like I said earlier this week, just how extensive it is. So even in your 40s, you have a twice as much risk of being hospitalized and four times the risk of dying. But when you jump up to 65, you jump up for hospitalization, it's a five-fold increase. And for death, it's a 60-fold increase. So age is really still the, the greatest risk factor for progressing to severe disease and death. I, I guess a question that many people are going to want to know is people who are already immunized, these points still refer to those people, even though they've been immunized. They did. We did not pull out research articles. They were all randomized controlled trials, but we didn't separate out ones that had only vaccinated or only unvaccinated patients. Okay. So n- people weren't, might not be as, as familiar with molnupiravir, but I think nirmatrelivir, ritonavir, Paxlovid. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, people are very familiar with that. Uh, I have friends ask me about, should I take Paxlovid? Should I not take mm-hmm. Paxlovid? This is worthwhile within five days of the onset of symptoms and high risk for progressing to severe disease. Given that I'm older than 65 and most of my friends are older than 65, all of my friends are at high risk. Nermaltrovir, ritonavir, or Paxlovid, as, as most people know it, you know, when it first came out, everybody wanted it. And then there was this lull where people didn't. And the CDC and a couple other news articles came out to say, we're not prescribing um, and people are being hospitalized and dying from COVID because we're we're not prescribing it enough. And I think there's a little bit of a fear of side effects. But actually, for Paxlovid, there is uh, moderate certainty evidence that it probably reduces hospitalizations, and that there was it it has really good evidence that there's no difference in adverse effects, and it also reduced all-cause mortality. So, you know, the decision to to prescribe it, in my mind, is really just educating your patients on the side effect profile so they're ready for it. It does create a sort of metallic taste in your mouth that a lot of people have difficulty stomaching, and there are some GI side effects. But uh, encouraging patients to take it if they're at high risk, I think, is is well worth doing. And many patients are going to ask about the relapse after you stop the Paxlovid. I think that happens uh, whether you take the medication or not. I was just going to say the good news, bad news is you can have rebound whether you take it or not. I think it is more apparent to patients um, if they have it after taking Paxlovid because it has been in the news so much. Right. Okay. That's probably the one that people are most interested in. But I think all of these others are really important also. The next one is to consider remdesivir with mild to moderate COVID within seven days of the onset Mm -hmm. of symptoms and high risk for progression. 
Yeah, so with remdesivir, what we found was there was low certainty evidence, but still randomized control trials that show that it might improve recovery without any risk of increasing adverse effects. It is a, a little bit more complicated to take than just prescribing Paxlovid to the local CVS. Mm. And I think that makes it more of a challenge, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that it's also an option, especially um, if there's a medication interaction or a low supply of Paxlovid. Number four, don't use azithromycin to treat these patients. Unfortunately, I still get requests for azithromycin from patients that uh, heard early on that maybe there was some benefit. Again, one of the really important reasons we did this and looked at those randomized controlled trials. So um, it had low certainty evidence that there was no difference in recovery time. And the thing that, that really kicked it into the do not use is that it may increase adverse effects. So without any benefit and the risk of harm, it should not be prescribed for treatment of COVID. Number five, do not use chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. I have to say, I'm I'm so proud of the committee. I know there's been a lot of political hubbub and discussion about these, and there was none of that in the committee discussion. We said, of course, we have to look at it because the question is still out there. Um, so for hydroxychloroquine, what we found was there's actually a negative effect on recovery without any difference in adverse effects, hospitalizations, or time to recovery. So that's that's why you really should not use it. Um, obviously, the goal is to get better as quick as you can, not to take longer. And then with ivermectin, there was low certainty evidence that there was maybe no difference in hospitalization or adverse effects, and probably no difference in recovery. So again, just on, and, and also no difference with the all-cause mortality. So Without a benefit that you could balance, it's just not worth prescribing, especially given the risks. Just so we can keep on track for the listeners, number one was uh, molnupravir. Uh, number two was, uh, we'll just say Paxlovid because that's what everybody knows it as. Number three was remdesivir. <laughs> number four was azithromycin. Number five was hydroxychloroquine. Don't do that. Six was ivermectin. Don't do that. Now, I don't know how to say this one. Number seven is nitazoxanide. Uh, yeah, that's you pretty good. Use it. I have no idea what it is. Teach me. It is also an anti-parasitic. It's not one that you really see used very often, but it is one that was studied. Just looking again in the same kind of realm as the ivermectin, the hydroxychloroquine. You know, maybe we just picked the the wrong one to treat with, but but actually. There's moderate certainty evidence that there's no difference in recovery or time to recovery, and there's likely no difference in hospital admissions or serious adverse events, and then again with just regular adverse events. So when you're looking across, trying to decide, and we have a nice table in there that I, I love the arrows because I'm a visual person, but if there's no benefit even even in the absence of significant adverse events, we really shouldn't take it just with the risk of medication interactions and taking medicine you don't need. On number eight, it's uh, to not use lopinavir, ritonavir combination. That's Calatra is the um, brand name for the lopinavir, ritonavir. It was very uncertain if it affected all-cause mortality and really no evidence for improving COVID-related, COVID-19-specific-related mortality. There was no evidence on 
improvement in recovery or time to recovery. And then it looked like there may be no difference in hospitalization, serious adverse events, but it might increase adverse events. And so it, especially in the setting of having molnupiravir, remdesivir, and nirmaltrevir and ritonavir to study, that one became uh, one of the do not use. Right, where I really like where this is going. Uh, number nine was another combination, casirivimab and imdevimab. I have the brand name somewhere. Let me find it. Casirivimab and imdevimab, I think is uh, Regcove. I'm just going to find my list because I wrote them all down for you. Oh, it's Regencove is the brand name for that. And what we found is that it does reduce time to recovery. It probably reduces hospitalization. The thing that you have to remember, though, uh, with the monoclonal antibodies is they work by targeting that spike protein. And so as the virus mutates and we have new versions of the virus, you have to know that it is specific to the strain that the person has that you're treating. And you can't just say anymore across the board, the monoclonal antibody infusions will help uh, the particular patient. So this is one where you might want to talk to your local Mm -hmm. infectious disease COVID-19 expert. Yeah, you really need proof that it's going to be beneficial in order to use it. Okay, number 10 is let's not use Ragden. Ragden. Yeah, Regdanzumab. Yeah. And this one has a really cool name, Reg Corona, which they were at least creative in it. But again, same reason, even though, you know, when it was originally studied, and these studies were um, before Omicron was the primary variant. So even though we saw that it probably improves recovery, and that there's probably no difference in adverse effects, The problem is, unless you know that the particular strain in your area or that your patient is infected with is going to respond to it, it is not worth the benefit. So it is on the do not use. And then number 11 is the last of the the MABs, which is Citrovimab. Yes. I I got that one right. (laughs) You did. You did. You did very good. Uh, There was another one that was studied too, but... um, because there was no benefit, it just got pulled really quickly. Yeah, so Citrovimab, which has a really cool name, Zebuday, I think is the is the brand name. Again, same difference, although there's probably no difference in um, adverse effects, and maybe it reduces hospitalization. Of the three, I think the best results were with the Casirivimab and Demivab. And in the setting of not knowing what the strain is and the particular response of that strain, it fell onto the do not use list. Right. So if a new variant comes out, this practice point could possibly change in the future if these MABs do attack the the spike protein in the next variant. Absolutely. And that's why we need these living practice points, because it could be different uh, six months from now for all we know. Absolutely. Um, You know, we plan to keep this open with the hope that we will continue to have treatments that work to keep people out of the hospital. But specifically for the monoclonal antibodies, you're kind of tied to what is the strain? Will this work with the spike protein or not? Number 12 is something that that people had high hopes for early on. Uh, I think back in 2020 was convalescent plasma, and it doesn't seem to, to do much and so it's it's now a recommendation not to use it. 
Yeah, unfortunately, the evidence that was out there showed that there may be no difference in all-cause mortality, time to recovery, serious adverse events, and, and the rest either had, the rest of the points either had no evidence or it was very uncertain. I agree. What a wonderful world it would be if those of us who had had COVID could then donate blood to save some of our loved ones. But at least as of now, it, the benefit is not there. Uh, and then the last two, cyclicinide. Cyclicinide is a steroid and it, it also is on the don't use list because there is a lot of uncertainty in the evidence that was found, but there was really uh, what we found was there's maybe no difference in recovery, not specifically recovery time, but recovery itself and no difference in adverse effects. But there was no evidence or really only very uncertain when it came to hospitalization or mortality. And the last one uh, is fluvoxamine. This was the one I advocated. I really, I really wanted to study it. I really wanted to know. And one of the reasons is I thought we'd be able to convince primary care docs to prescribe this more easily because it is an antidepressant that they may have come across versus some of the antiviral medications that maybe they hadn't used before. Unfortunately, the evidence really said that there may be no difference in hospitalization or all-cause mortality, and, and the rest of the data was really very uncertain. So I was hopeful it actually didn't meet the mark for us. So let's summarize for outpatient physicians who are being called up about their patient who now has tested positive for COVID or they get tested in your office, the things that you might consider doing right now are? So the things that other than symptomatic management, when you're trying to keep them out of the hospital and keep them as healthy as you can, I think nermatrelvir, ritonavir, or Paxlovid is probably the most prominent in your local pharmacies. It is easy to prescribe and it probably reduces with moderate certainty evidence hospital admission. And it same it has that moderate um, certainty behind it for all-cause mortality without a difference in adverse events. So for me, that's probably the first one that I consider. You also have remdesivir and molnupiravir to choose from that I think molnupiravir is also pretty prevalent in the community. You might have a harder time getting remdesivir than, than the other two because the other two you can pick up at your local pharmacy. Given the timeframes, Paxlovid is within the first five days. So if someone is the fourth, fifth, or sixth Six day, you may want to be considering uh, either remdesivir or molnupiravir. Yeah, you yeah. can you get a, you buy yourself um, a couple of extra days, and honestly, that might become more important because Omicron. I have a lot of patients who will say, "I was just congested. I didn't think it was anything for about two days before I tested." So they're calling us a little bit later into the disease than they were before. Well, I really want to congratulate you as a representative of the committee uh, and, and obviously the entire committee. And full disclosure, I was once on this committee and I know I know almost everybody on the committee, but this is hard, important work that gives us a sense of what we can be doing in the outpatient setting to best uh, help our patients who are at high risk. Your final thoughts. So my final thoughts, I'm really, I'm also um, really proud to be part of bringing this to other primary care physicians that are out there um, and being able to offer our patients something so that they can help prevent ending up in the hospital or dying from COVID-19. I suspect that there will be some controversy and, and I look forward to it actually, because that will stir 
more research that will provide us stronger versions of this as we move forward. Thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. First, I apologize for not being able to pronounce all the generic names of all the medications that uh, we discussed. It is really difficult. Second, in the outpatient treatment of confirmed COVID-19, the combination drug, which goes by the trade name of Paxlovid, seems to be the most important drug that's worth using to decrease hospitalizations. The committee studied very many potential other treatments uh, that did not work, uh, including hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, plasma from a patient who had uh, survived COVID, as well as some MABs that had worked with previous uh, variants of COVID but are not working with uh, Omicron. The most important thing about this is that we have an idea of what to do at this snapshot in time And we have a committee of the American College of Physicians, the Scientific Medical Policy Committee, that will review new data as they come out. And these practice points are living, and there will be a version two and a version three for us to discuss in the future. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.